Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green, Micah Green, and Peter from the Midwest. Welcome to the show, everybody. Thank you. Yeah. Good to be here. Sitting here cooking in our own sweat on the East Coast tonight. (laughs) Yeah, delicious. It's yeah. so hot. Did you guys see the, uh, there's this lady in Arizona. She made this bread dough and she put it in her mailbox. It fucking baked perfectly. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Well, that's creative. That's creative to say the least. <laughs> I want to try it. Anyways, we are here to discuss, uh, well, we are here to essentially host another anatomy of the scene. And this episode, we're going to discuss the Moracle orphanage scene from blade runner 2049 it's something that we've never talked about on the show at all it's one of those things where all of a sudden something pops up and we're like patrick we've never even just talked about we've never talked about kids in the blade runner universe i think we might have touched upon one kid in the comic like two years ago when dan was on the show but we have these children in blade runner and no discussion around it um but there's also some interesting things that happen in this scene so that's kind of the preface for this episode I'll just throw it out there. Like, what do you, what do you guys, what do you think of this scene? Having, seeing kids in Blade Runner for the first time. Well, I want to hear what Peter has to say because his family is roughly the same size as the orphanage. There's about the same amount of children (laughs) in that. (laughs) Yeah, pretty close. That's how, that's how it's done out here in the Midwest. No, let's, uh, yeah, I guess uh, one way to start would be, you know, first impressions. I remember uh, watching the movie in the theater and entering the uh, orphanage. Can someone pronounce it again? Just for the benefit of the listeners, not me, you know, for the benefit of the listeners only. Moricole, but I always look at it like, like it's Moricole, but it's Moricole. (laughs) Okay. I'll raise my hand anytime I need you to just say that. So let's try it. Here we go. The Moricole orphanage. Um, scene I remember initially I think when he when so let's set it up um we'll start I think for purposes of this episode at least I, I'm assuming we're starting you know after the the joy or the scene with joy in the spinner it grounds we've got love doing some long distance um, bombing uh, which in its own right is is pretty amazing um scene but you know and then Kay enters the Moracle. it's Moracle. Moracle. okay orphanage it's like it's like miracle but with a weird accent Moracle. <laughs> so he enters the orphanage and then there's just this expansive scene and i remember at first it, it's similar to maybe harrison ford in a t-shirt um kind of for a brief second maybe took me out but you know as we've discussed before this movie you're so far in that you know that's really you know some form of inception where i'm still three layers down 
in the movie, so it didn't take me out to, back into reality in any way. But I just remember thinking, hey, this looks a little odd. And I think a lot of it may be for what Jamie's talking about, which is all of a sudden there's all these kids with shaved heads looking like Ripley fans. And um, I think it just kind of dumbfounded me for a minute that there'd be this expansive network of, of kids, children, um, and it wasn't until after, um, and a couple more viewings that I've really come to enjoy the scene a lot more and, and just, you know, I have it open right now on my computer as I'm talking and just, uh, it's, it's a scene when, when K first flashes his badge and then it cuts to a, a wide shot and there's just endless tables, um, blue scraps everywhere that we tend or come to find that that's, you know, technology being broken down. Um, and just, it's, it's a lot of blue, a lot of maroon, a lot of dark green. And again, those are also a lot of colors we don't see in any other scene of the movie either. So I think just uh, to pass it along, um, you know, my first thought was, hey, I don't know. Because again, um, a lot of strange outfits are, are more kind of organic outfits than we've typically seen in Blade Runner, um, or at least organic looking um, children. And so a lot of that part, initially, I didn't like it, but I've come to really love this scene, and we'll get into that as we kind of go along. But that was my initial take. You're in here to work. And if you're not working, I don't need you. I don't need any of you. The nickel is for the colonial ships, closest any of them or any of us is going to get to that grand life off world. When you mentioned doing this, Jamie, which I'm really glad you did because it's a great sequence that we really do never talk about. I was trying I was trying to think of why we never address this sequence. And I think it's because it's bookended by such intense moments in the movie. And we're kind of dealing with the fallout or the pre-fallout from that because you have you know, the Trash Mesa sequence, which is really just magisterial and scary and amazing. And then you have, you know, Kay finding the, the the figurine in the furnace, which is kind of how the orphanage sequence ends. And that is really like such an emotional touch point, because that's, of course, the moment where Kay decides, like, this is my story before he gets later refuted by Celine. So, like, there's these two huge tent poles. And then in between them is this sequence that, just as Peter said, feels a little bit like from a different universe, it feels very, very different from a lot of Blade Runner material. Um, and I don't say that in a disparaging way whatsoever either. I, I agree with Peter that it's a really cool sequence. Um, but, you know, I, thinking back to the first time I saw it, I was definitely fixated on the fact that Lenny James was in it because he's just such a great actor. And because it, it, when this came out, we were still pretty active Walking Dead fans and and even Fear the Walking Dead fans. This is kind of before we had officially parted ways with those shows. But I remember being like, whoa, he's in this. That's like so great. And of course, I think Lenny James brings a huge amount of complexity to this character, Mr. Cotton, that he plays. Um, you know, it, I mean, he really thought through this character from top to bottom and worked with Denny to make the character feel like there's a beginning and a, a future to this story. And, and that's such a testament to the quality of actor that he is and like what he did in that role. Um, and then just in terms of the the children, like I, it really, you're right. There isn't really another moment like that in, in Blade Runner. And we, we spend so much time talking almost 
about this world being post child, you know, because if you look at the first film, like there, I mean, there, I'm sure there are kids in it that I'm forgetting about right now, but like just off the top of my head, I can't think of any sequences that have children in them. Um, and same thing with 2049. It's basically a childless future. It's a bunch of adults living depressive lives. And part of us, I think as we're watching it, uh, you know, part of us is aware that there must be children somewhere in the mix of this too. And like, what are they up to? Like, where have they gone? And it turns out a lot of them, at least in the greater Los Angeles era area are living under a overturned satellite dish. And so my closing of this opening thought is also that the set design is really amazing. And that was something that, the, I mean, the first time I saw that dish, first off, you know, it's framed in the, the shot that defines 2049. And we've posted on social media a lot about this, that rear shot where Kay's centered in the frame walking towards something, you know, we get probably 40 or 50 shots like that in the movie. And there's an amazing one right here where he kind of comes up over the trash mesa and the camera centers itself. It kind of pulls in a little bit and all of a sudden he's right in the middle. And then just past his eye line, you see this huge dish rising up out of the earth. Um, and just that use of perspective is so haunting and and seeing this thing and feeling drawn to it because of course for Kay, he's tracing the source, not only of this, you know, genetic code that he's looking for, but potentially of himself. And I think we kind of feel that as he goes inexorably towards it. And then of course, into the ship and which is another amazing set, which we'll talk about tonight. But initial thoughts were that it felt somewhat overshadowed because of the intensity of the events directly around it. But it's a it's a sequence that I think says a lot about Blade Runner that not many other ones do. This scene was very powerful for me, uh, just in the sense that we hadn't seen children before. And when Kay first walks in, I guess it was kind of a door, but it's a very broken down um, structure. It's it's an overturned dish, but so it's not really a building. Um, but the first thing we see are all these kids who stare at him and then touch him and like lead him, and he's very awestruck by them as they are awestruck by him so it's like they know something it's almost like they know it's like he's a rescuer for them even though he doesn't rescue them at all it's a very strange moment between him and those children and i want like the kids are bald but lenny james's character is not bald i don't think maybe he is bald i don't think he is is he bald in the well he's got the shawl on um, he does and then it comes off i think when he's looking at the book and he I has short that. hair and I don't know if it's kept short or or what, but the scene he takes his hood off as they're walking right. down the stairs, and it's yeah, it's short. yeah. I'm okay, looking at so it right now, it's definitely it's, a, it's it's one layer above. I'd say it's about a zero point five okay length runner. <laughs> <laughs> but so if there's a lice issue, then Lenny James, his cotton character, would also have a shaped head. I would imagine. So I don't know if it's a lights issue. I don't know what is going on. If these kids are replicant children, because it's supposed to be an orphanage, but it also, it feels like a, a, a work camp. It doesn't feel like an orphanage at all. And if anything, it feels nefarious, like cotton says, well, what kind of kid would you like? Almost like you can use this child for whatever purpose you want, whether it's sex trafficking or gross things or, Whatever, or do maybe you want a child of your own, but it's this is not a normal orphanage. This is a very insidious, dark place. And those kids, you can see on their faces, they seem traumatized, at least to my view. Um, so it's it's very strange. And it's also strange to see Kay's reaction because Kay isn't very emotive in this movie at all. But in this moment, when he first sees those children, his eyes are wide. 
And he's like, whoa, what's this? Um, and it's an emotional scene almost because Kay has never been a child. And now he's surrounded by children. And I don't know if he's ever met a child before in his life. So it's a very interesting scene. I remember being struck by the way that the children were looking at Kay. It's very, not mysterious, but I think it's very interesting. Their faces, I mean, this is the first time we see children in in the universe of Blade Runner, I think, yes. But it's like almost as if they've seen so much that they're, they just don't act like children that we're used to seeing, especially in movies. Most children are, you know, they're like playing or they're teasing each other or they're doing something. They're literally sitting in the darkness when Kay enters. And both Kay and the children, they're all like enthralled with each other and almost don't know how to react. It's like this awestruck um, emotion that's coming from them. And I always, I find that the children seem um, kind of like they all have old souls. Like they've just seen so much. They're very broken yet they seem hopeful to see him and they follow him and sort of lead him into that big room where all the other children are um and it struck me when we were talking about this just now like Kay doesn't do anything to save them he's there for one reason alone um so the first time i saw that scene i remember just worrying for the children and like wondering about each and every one of them especially the one that drops you know his work or her work and is like immediately terrified only Kay's presence seemingly saves that child from probably some horrible punishment for doing something as innocent as dropping their work. But it's just, it seems so, you know what? It kind of reminds me of a bit um, in the story of Pinocchio. What's his name? The guy who has all the little boys and he, he's like, just kind of. Right. It might be Stromboli. And at first he's nice in the movie of Pinocchio, but then when he's ordering them to work, he's like, he's a monster and he's not even pretending to be nice to them. He's not even pretending to be nice to these children. He even says, I don't need any of you unless you work. And it's just, it's just like a slap in the face as an audience member, I think, because it's just, you're not used to seeing, even though, I mean, even though children deal with horrible things every day. We are not used to directly dealing with abuse toward children in front of us. I think most people, um, and don't get me wrong, like I, I don't pretend to know everybody's story, but I think this scene is shocking in that way that Lenny James is so charismatic yet so frightening and so monstrous to these kids. They can't even really look at him. They're just kind of furiously working. So I remember being like kind of shocked by that when I first saw it. And on subsequent watches, um, Patrick and I were talking um, earlier about how I think it's fascinating to think as Kay is walking up to this like gigantic building, he has no idea what's in there. But when he walks up to the door, it struck me that he may be believing, is this where I come from, you know, and maybe reconciling with that for the first time and how much Kay is not emotive, yet all of this large emotional baggage is kind of thrust upon him as soon as he steps through the door. And then what he's met, probably the last thing he might have expected, which is like a sea of children's faces. Um, and I think it's really poignant to think 
of what you said, Jamie, which is like, have has Kay ever seen a child other than what he remembers seeing? Has Kay ever interacted with a child as an as a quote unquote adult? So there's just there's so much in such a very short, very like harsh scene. And I think it, it will be really fun to keep talking about it. And I encourage play. I do. Keeps them occupied and uh, and it makes them nimble, right? <laughs> but it's work. It's work that molds them into a child worth having. So come on now. What sort do you have in mind? I got all kinds. No, no, no. I'm not buying. No, no, no. This is just my game, and I play it fair. No, no. I mean, bigger than you. Bigger than you were trying to shut me down. Bigger than you, and they were, they were men at that. Something else about the scene that I think is interesting is the way that Cotton responds to k when he pulls the badge out right because the nature of the scene really switches on a on a dime when that happens right like because as you were pointing out jamie everybody is assuming that k is there to acquire a child for whatever purposes you know he would have in mind um and then as soon as he pulls the lapd lapd badge out cotton's body language changes so much and he gets so angry and he's almost like insulted because a replicant is here trying to do that and he keeps saying like bigger than you have tried to take me down and they were men at that right and really rubbing that in on k so it's interesting to see in this context how k who's clearly formidable and like has no issues murdering people and and replicants and you know he's he does his job however he needs to do it um, I shouldn't say murdering people because I, I don't think we have any examples of that, but he clearly is a, a, a killing capable machine, right? Replicant. Um, how like Lenny James, it doesn't portray Cotton as being afraid of him, particularly until he gets hit in the face. And then as soon as that happens, it's like, okay, total compliance. Like, let's go do what you got to get done. So it's an interesting study in that regard too. I think that we see Kay's dynamic with, you know, a subject of law enforcement interest who is not actually a replicant. And it's all playing out in this, you know, because everybody else that he's like going after are replicants. It's also playing out in the context of, as Michael was pointing out, Kay gradually trying to figure out if he's been here before. And I think that Ryan Gosling does such a, a you know marvelous job with that of conveying this sense of like, he's not quite human. He's kind of removed emotionally from the situation. And yet he clearly is not, I mean, he's just failed a baseline test for one thing too. He's clearly not like in his like programmed frame of mind at the moment. And part of that unraveling is coming from how confused he is in this setting because he can't tell if he's been here. And I think leading from what everybody's been talking about when he first walks through that little shack entrance to the, to the satellite dish and the kids take him like the kids take him by the hand, like it, it almost like he's a like a messiah figure, like they, they lead him in almost like a procession. And um, it must be so disorienting for someone like Kay, who has been in a box, literally and figuratively, to be in this world of new experiences, to be past the sepulchral wall in this, you know, universe of garbage and trying to navigate it with children. Um, 
That's really interesting. I think it's just as confusing for us as it is for him the first time we see it. It's a lot to take in. A couple of things. Are those children replicants? Is it a possibility? I think it's a great possibility that they're replicants, that they're discarded replicant children um, from people who no longer wanted them. They no longer served their purpose. They acted a little bit differently. I don't know for sure. We don't know. Um, but at the same time, this orphanage does not seem above board. This orphanage is off in the, out in the middle of nowhere, and clearly other things are going on there. Clearly these children are, are scared, and they don't want to be where they are at. But at the same time, I, so I don't know for sure. I'd love to hear what you guys think, if these kids are replicants or not. Because at this, at this point, we know that Wallace can manufacture replicants that can age. Um, so that's a possibility. Uh, the other thing I want to mention is a little bit reminds me a little bit of the Bryant Deckard conversation and I'll pass it to you, Peter. Um, how does cotton know that K is a replicant? He goes, and he, they were men at that. How does he know he's a replicant? How does he know he's a blade runner for, for all that? He wouldn't know that he wouldn't more human than human unless because of course, this is just speculation on my part, unless because that's an orphanage full of replicant children. And so they're going to send a replicant there. Yeah, I'll try and hit a couple things and continue passing. I think this is a good one where we try to pass as, as often as possible because everyone's kind of got, I think there's a lot to cover. Like Micah said, it's, it's very dense in a very short amount of time. And it obviously leaves a, a very good impression um, on all of us and probably a lot of listeners as well. Um I think to Jamie's final point, I always just, I mean, in my head canon, it's, it's simply the badge. And I don't know if, if cotton knows or if what that badge says, I've not, it'd be awesome if someone out there had done a, a nice uh, pause on some super fancy TV or something, but it's, it's likely that badge probably says something to the effect, whether cotton knows to uh, probably also has familiarity with it based on his little monologue there. Um, and I'm not sure regarding the children, I've always assumed that they're not replicants. There might've been some reference to that in the art of Blade Runner, maybe, but my assumption, at least again, this is just my interpretation, which is also why these, obviously this movie is amazing is that we can all have these. And I really like thinking over that as, as possibly replicant, but my viewings have always been children that are left behind probably by people who are just itching to get off world. And probably so much so that, hey, let's leave these kids behind. It's going to be too expensive to to pay for them to go. We'll just leave them behind, whether that's a, a well-to-do family leaving their children behind. I mean, you can play every scenario, and there's every poor scenario and sad scenario in our own world of any um, uh, you know, class or whatever, not treating their children as they should. Um, so, you know, I, I could see it as children from every walk of life being left behind. Um and also probably children who are just picked up on the street who aren't, who also, you know, don't have parents who are taking care of them and, you know, cotton or probably his men. Uh, there's a scene where they show the full room and I think it's five different guys, or I don't know, could be women, um, could be anyone. And I don't know that the, if they're human or, or not um, as well, but it seems like there's five other kind of watchers. They have their hands behind their back and they seem to be monitoring everything that's going on. But I'm rambling a little bit, but I wanted to really touch on one. I, that's my reading is that they are children who have been left behind. 
um, which brings on all sorts of sad connotations with the world the way it is. Um, also that you don't ever see any children on the streets in any of the Blade Runners too. So it makes sense that they're kept somewhere for whatever type of purpose. And then I, I, Patrick, I had the exact same read and I even had, if I had notes, I would have written it down, but I don't. But I mean, I definitely had it in my head too, that they're treating K as some sort of Messiah. And I don't know if, and I'd be interested to hear you guys' take. I don't know if that's this whole part of the scene is what the purpose is. If it's to simply show uh, the treatment of children in this world and how that's a sad commentary on, on where things are in 2049. Or if it is, I mean, Bill New is typically, I would think, above sort of cheap tricks, but I don't think he'd be above trying to sell a point home. And at this point, I mean, it's this orphanage that really sells us all on that K for what Patrick's saying, the you know, the scene to follow this on um, that K is the is the child um, in quotes. And um, so it is sort of a strange Messiah scene. I mean, uh, there's things I want to go into later as we go on about, you know, just sort of, you know, immaculate conception, the the children, the whole sorts of religious aspects of, of fathers and everything to this world. And, you know, Jamie, I know you always have great thoughts and all that, too. But I mean, where I'm sort of leading to this, too, is, you know, it's it, there's been a lot of discussions as a listener to this. Uh, podcast for a, a long time um and uh, now uh, participant too i mean we're always talking about replicants as children um they don't have the life experience we compare a lot of them to children there's fathers in tyrell there's fathers in, in wallace um all these different things so it's just crazy that all of a sudden there's just this giant group of kids and it's just sort of hitting this over the head of children 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 and a theme of messiah and uh, anyways it, i'm getting too far deep um, but yeah, I'd I'd really like to know everyone's sort of take on on that Jamie's question of of replicant or or, or human, then sort of why why this scene, um, other than what else could Villeneuve be trying to communicate, other than trying to lead us down that rabbit hole? Again, I it, there's more to that because it's it's not just a simple hey follow me, oops, I'm tricking you. Um, so yeah, just be interested to hear what everyone else thinks about that. When I first viewed it, I, I I kind of felt the same way that you did, Peter, with my headcanon that he had seen the badge and had read that, oh, this is a Blade Runner, maybe even has Kay's serial, full serial number on it or something like that. But I do love that question because it's another blow to Kay, you know, like, oh, there's another, there's another reminder you're not a human, you're less than, you're not even worth me being afraid of your badge. Right. So it's like almost like that, that little exchange is serving to push K down again because he, oh no, he's getting a little hopeful that maybe he's the child of Rachel. So it's not that um, that's what definitely what I feel like Villeneuve was trying to say, but I think it's interesting that there's just a moment where um, Cotton believes that K is this person who's here who is a customer and then now that oh i know he's a blade runner from this quick switch seeing the badge really quick um and as to the children i always thought that they were kids like actual human kids um i didn't know if we had ever i mean maybe it's only because excuse me i didn't know that we that that there may be um there may be a market honestly for people like Wallace to be creating child 
replicants. But now that you are bringing that question, I mean, of course there would be, there would be people who have wanted their own children who couldn't have children and, oh my gosh, someone can manufacture one for you. And then maybe those people, like you were saying, Peter, were getting off world and got bored of their quote unquote toys and left them. And either way, human replicant, those children are completely abandoned and now they're being abused. So it's, it's, it's definitely an interesting thought experiment to just sit with in this like four minute scene that we're all discussing right now. Um, But yeah, I guess I had always thought they were human children and that Cotton had seen the badge or something like that. He recognized in Kay's model that he was a Blade Runner. Um, But yeah, it's really interesting to think about this. I was just going to jump in one very, very sorry, Patrick. Um, You're good. Go for it. I have it paused on a scene too, where it's Cotton's back. And it's a, a, you see one of the workers and he's got his arms behind his back. But some of the kids have at least what appears to be in my sort of almost blurry thing. But some of them have longer hair. Some of them have more newly shaven heads. And it could be that it just takes well for the barber to cycle through, you know, the kids from one side to the other. But it also almost reads like I joked for a minute, you know, Ripley um, Alien 3, it almost appears that some of the older kids have been there longer. So again, it's just, it's a fair, there's so much information in every second of the scene, but I just, I just saw that, just wanted to throw that out there too. That's just, yeah, it, it's, it's a, it tells so much in just each scene and sort of passage of time, maybe based on hair length, it's just endless. So, okay. Sorry about that. No, it's fine. I, I think, uh, I, I think the hair is also about depersonalization and it's, it's showing the lack of, individuality that these kids are allowed to have. Like, I think a lot of the way that the Morkul orphanage is run is by like breaking the kid's spirit, you know? Um, and I think that the, the, the hair thing is just a symbol of that. It's like the easiest haircut in the world is where you just shave their hair off, you know, and then it grows back and then you just shave it off again. It's just, I, I think very dehumanizing. And you see that in the way they're dressed, you see that in how they look sort of, you know, if not malnourished, at least unhealthy, like they just, it just is not, it doesn't look like a good place. Uh, to put it to put it mildly and in terms of what the kids are i, I actually looked it up in the art and soul of blade runner peter as you had mentioned um and it, they're referred to as discarded youths so you know not to say that youths can't refer to replicant youths but that, that's kind of how they're framed um in the book and it also talks about you know the the the, the filming process you know this was a three-day shoot inside the the dome and um the kids were, you know, it's, they're all real. It's not like CG children and they were getting bored frequently and they they were speaking three different languages at the same time. So it was kind of this like whole hassle of getting all these kids to like stay focused for three days. Um, and they had to engineer special computer parts and tools that wouldn't hurt them. So they got like all this discount, you know, like bargain bin, like, you know, CPUs and things. And then they had to like whittle things down and give them like plastic tools to use so they wouldn't get hurt. Um, but the, the, and if you have the art and soul of Blade Runner, I recommend you read that part because it, it's just really cute. They talk about like working with, with all these kids and about just what a strange experience it was to have this room full of like a hundred children, uh, you know, working as, as extras and some of them featured extras in this shoot. Um, and just before I get back to the characterizations and stuff to say also from the book, you can see how they built the set, which is incredible. They actually constructed the full dome which is wild to think about. This thing is, you know, uh, actually, hang on, let me look it up. Yeah, an inner diameter of 125 feet. And 
Yeah. It took 10 weeks to build, which is just, which is just crazy that they actually did that. And it's all practical. There are some green screen inserts to allow for set extensions and like things where lights coming through and things like that. But it's basically, they, they actually constructed the whole thing. And even when Kay is approaching it, you know, by coming over that little part of the trash mesa, they, the, what you see there is a digital insert of a full matte painting. So it's very old school and it's, you know, and the, the actual trash area is real and he's walking on a physical trash set and then he comes over and then there's a green screen, you know, in the way where they impose the matte paint onto it. And it's so crazy to look in the, in the book because you can see that on either side of this green screen, there's like trees and, you know, it's just like, it's, it's just like a, you know, back lot in Budapest. But um, it's it's they they do really amazing things and and just before I kind of move on move on from this stuff, the of course the the next part where they go into the ship, which is also an amazing set and I think kind of related to the orphanage sequence, that was a decommissioned Soviet era Budapest power plant, um, which is intact and they had to you know structurally reinforce things and put netting up to protect from debris falling. But they actually filmed inside this this decommissioned power plant, and I mean you can't make something better than that. You know, if you want to get at this idea of, you know, something that was once kind of glorious and has since been corrupted by the decay from within the system. And now it looks this way. It just, it just is so evocative and it really speaks to the level of detail. Like Peter was saying that they put into this movie, just the level of thought that went into it. A little boy came through here about 30 years back. I need to see your records, <laughs> legitimate placements, private sales, everything. Don't keep records that far back. You don't. I don't. Sorry. <laughs> can't help you. You can't? Nope. I think you can. <laughs> I think someone like you keeps a long memory. Now you can tell me what you remember. I can put a hole right here and take a look. It's it's an interesting scene. It's very ambiguous. We don't really know what we're seeing. Um, I think we we have, and I, I love this about Blade Runner is what we're seeing is what we're bringing to it. Um, in some ways, I mean, there's some fundamental things going on in terms of the children. Um, they're there, and we don't really know why they're there. I mean, it's an orphanage, but it it it's on. I mean, it's an orphanage that's on the books enough that K can go through records at the LAPD. So there's something on the books or on the level about this orphanage um it's ripe with different ideas as to what might be going on if you walk in when k walks into the office or the office area you'll see uh the symbol for water all over it's on the desk it's actually also on the back of k's jacket which i mentioned in an episode years ago um so there's something and then of course there's the horse ashtray there which which plays into the horse that Kay ha knows about and is looking for, or maybe not is looking for, but he knows exists in a memory. So it brings that memory just a little bit closer to him, but it also brings back, it It tips its hat to the unicorn um, in the original Blade Runner. So there's so much going on here. I can't even really make heads or tails of this scene, to be honest with you. I don't know what actually is going on um, with these characters. It's almost... There's a scene in Vertigo where Jimmy Stewart goes into the McKittrick Hotel and he's following Madeline Elster and she goes into this hotel and he follows her in. But when he gets there, she's not there, but there's a woman at the desk and he's like, hey, no, I've been following this woman. Um, I think she lives in this hotel and she's like, oh, 
she's like, oh yeah, Miss Valdez, she lives upstairs. It's like, well, I think she's up there. She's like, there's nobody here. She's like, look, there's her key. Her key's here. And they go up to the room and no one's there. And then Jimmy Stewart's like at the end, he's like, well, her car's gone. And the woman's like, well, what car are you talking about? Because she was never there, maybe. And this is a scene to me. And I think it also reminds me a little bit of Enemy, which I don't know. I'm sure all of you have seen. Have you seen Enemy, Peter? Anyways, if you haven't seen Enemy, it reminds me of the ambiguity of Enemy. Are we seeing, is what is being shown to us something we're actually seeing or is there another story being told behind this it's it's very and to a point that peter made earlier it never pulled me out but it was kind of like whoa what's this what is this whole sequence this is not congruous with anything that i've seen before which i like because it means he's not playing safe he could have played safe we could have not seen any children the only little people that we've ever seen in blade runner are in the original film when they're on the streets running around and they're a little bit more tropey like, oh, look, interesting. They're little people on top of a car, you know, a little bit more stereotypical as opposed to actual children. Um, but it also reminds me of something that Celine says, which I don't think is true, but it, she's talking to Kay when he's asking about the memories. And he's saying, why are you behind this glass, essentially? Because he taps on the glass. And she's like, oh, Galatian syndrome. My parents this, my parents that. They didn't. So I, then I was thinking, well, maybe these kids were discarded because their parents were going off world. And for some reason they were sick and they couldn't bring their kids with them. But at the same time, what parent would do that? What parent would leave their children behind? Like, or their child behind to go to a new world? Oh, sorry, can't go. See ya. Like what barbaric monstrous parent would do that? So all of these questions then return to my first question. What are these kids? Who are these kids? And to another point that you made, Peter or Patrick, I was just looking at this clip of the scene, and you do see other kids there with full heads of a full head of hair. So, and they look a little bit older, like they've obviously been there a while. And so maybe when new kids are brought in, to your point, Patrick, they shave their head saying, You're just like everyone else here. No one is, you know, and they give them the whole almost like when you go to prison. Um, not that I've ever been to prison. <laughs> um where they shave your head or, or the Marines or what some type of like, or when you start a job and you're all, you're all given the same uniform because you're all the same here, except for with this, with the Moracle orphanage, they are not all the same. This is a, this is a, this is a trade happening. These kids are there and they're doing this work, but they're slave labor. They're also being sold off to people who are the highest bidder for whatever purposes. So I, again, this is just a very mysterious scene for me that I can't really wrap my head around. I guess part of the, in, in listening to you talk, Jamie, as typically does, all you know, things start to fl- flow through and kind of hear through your guys' filters, which is always so much fun. Um, it almost appears too. I mean, I don't have any hesitation in, in thinking it could also be part of a, a Wallace greater good plan or something. You know, I, I think with the uh, people leaving off world again, we don't know how many people have gone off world or how much of the population existed or what our numbers were before people started going off world. And I wouldn't be entirely surprised again. This is, this shows my hand of just a, a big fan of the character of Wallace in general and his sort of duality. And is he a villain? Is he trying to save people and just, pulling the hard making the hard decisions and i think there was some really fun discussion about um miguel the character um in you know the latest uh spider-verse 
movie as well, sort of having to make those types of decisions. So I, and I know Patrick, that's a sore spot for you, which I understand because that's such a great character and sort of people's first impressions now are now of a villain. But anyways, I digress into, so for Wallace, for me, you know, I, I like to think a lot of, uh, about how he's, he, you know, originally saved the planet by creating the food source. It wouldn't be that far off to think that he's also developed ways to maintain either population control on the outer on, you know, off world. And it wouldn't be insane to start thinking that families could be limited to the amount of people you get to bring over. Um, Or even let's, I mean, this popped in my head, which I don't know if this goes to any say on, on my mental state either, but I mean, you know, almost keep an entire generation off and give everyone time to grow and have space off world before you overpopulate and cause the same problems. Um, so, and it's not that far off, you know, with, with governments doing that um, to as far as limiting people to the amount of kids they can have and things like that too. So it's, it's just, again, it's so much fun that this scene doesn't answer or give us anything and it even culminates in a scene which uh, I'll go into too, and just sort of our, our love of of the you know analogness of of Blade Runner too. It, it's hilarious and fun and just so satisfying that part of what uh, Cotton goes into his office and he starts flipping through a book of records, which is just so you know in stark contrast to uh, prior scenes of him and joy going through computer databases of ones and zeros and, and genomes and, or I don't even know if I'm using the terms right, but you know, basically our, our DNA sequences on a computer. And now all of a sudden you've got a guy rifling for a book, trying to find records and his big thing, all of a sudden he's able to just say, Hey, it was here and now it's not here, which if you believe him or not, it could mean that someone came in and tore pages out of a book, which is again, in stark contrast to Blackout and some of these other short films that we have where entire databases of records have been destroyed digitally. And now we're seeing the same thing done just by tearing pages out of a book. It's just like Jamie said, I, I think I probably misspoke in saying it took me out of the movie. I like Jamie's description more where all of a sudden you're just like, whoa, 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 whoa. This is new for Blade Runner and in such a cool way. So there's just so much, and I'll, I'll pass it on. And, and Micah, you've been quiet for a sec, so it'd just be kind of interesting to hear sort of your take on the development of the scene and how you know they move through it and, and Cotton's reactions here and, and things like that. Well, first of all, I really love the hard switch that um, Cotton does after getting hit in the face. He becomes this kind of mouse of a person, and he's literally scutt- scuttling around and like, moving all the papers and looking for it. And he seems actually terrified of Kay, which is rightfully so because Kay is formidable, but hadn't really flexed anything yet. So I love that dramatic change and how desperate I, I tend to, I tend to become enthralled with scenes like the more dramatic, the more desperate, the more the stakes are raised. And it seems like cotton stakes just went through the roof. He just left those kids to their own devices and he's just, hopeful to get k what he wants to to provide an answer that he wants um going back to the origin of the kids i just wanted to say one more thing was that if they are human children and i it just it leads me to believe that there are 
a variety of situations that could have happened that, yes, like we were talking about, maybe their parents went off world and and in a devastating, cruel act, left their children on a dying planet. But what if their parents didn't leave them? And I, I mean, there's this great famine before Wallace comes in with the protein farming and maybe their parents simply died and that's what made them orphans. Um, and they had just been kind of scrapping along alone. Um, all of these stories, whether they were made, they were generated as replicant children and then discarded in that way, or if they were discarded human children, or simply they lost their parents, they lost their families. All of these stories are tragic. And to me, a part of the power of the scene too, is that all of these children are in this room. You can't even count how many are there. And each one of them has tragedy already. And they're all so small. And it's just a room of tragedy and pain. And yet Kay comes in and and there's wonder. So it's this dichotomy of tragedy and wonder. And then that moves into desperation and it makes the scene so much smaller and so much snappier when Kay is taken by Cotton to the records room. And I think for me in my head canon, I kind of believe Cotton because I think he's too scared to lie. Um, I think that his day was fine and then it got better for a second and then worse when Kay punched him in the face and then drastically worse when the thing that he needed he thinks to save his own life is missing from this book. And I really love what you were talking about, the blackout and losing data. And then this purge of data, um, manual purge of actual paper data. Um, it's just, it's just rich. Again, I'll just end my thoughts with it's such a short scene, but it again establishes such an intense um, story development that it's, we're sitting here talking almost an hour later about this four minute scene. So it's just, it's fascinating. You know what I mean? It's gone. It's the, the entire year. I didn't do that. That wasn't me. That wasn't me. I wonder if this orphanage is sponsored by Wallace, as Wallace has through the years searched for the child. They know there's a child. They they know this child exists. They've known it since before Deckard was um, on the scene. Al although I don't know for sure if they've known about a child because maybe they didn't know about the child until. Uh, well, no, they must have known about the child because Rachel and Deckard were on the run. So they someone knew about this child. So to me, if I were this overlord, um, which Neander Wallace is, what do you do? How do you look for this child? Do you create a hub? Let's create what what looks like a regular orphanage, but really we're keeping tabs on these kids because we're looking for children and we're going to sponsor it and we're going to maybe throw a little bit of money or whatever they do just to kind of keep it barely running, which is kind of what it looks like. It's in shambles. But if I were Wallace, I would want to know what kids are going through orphanages and how do you know that? How do you track a child? You track a child through orphanages. And that's exactly what happened. So the people that were looking for, for Anna Staline, not knowing if Anna was a girl or a boy, because of course her, her gender was hidden. Um, they came to the orphanage, um, but she was, I think 
in the dream, wasn't her head shaved like a boy? I think the boy's heads were shaved, but her head wasn't, but her hair, her hair was too, because they were hiding her gender. Um, whoever, whether it was Fraser or Sapper, whoever put her in that orphanage needed to hide her gender, um, which I guess maybe the, the cotton or whoever's running that orphanage, they wouldn't give the kids showers or whatever. So you couldn't really see, but you imagine the kids are having showers or whatever. The other boys might see her and be like, it's not a boy. It's a girl. I don't really know how that all would happen. But again, I revert back to this idea that this orphanage is a Wallace orphanage and, but in a, in a very underground way, no one would know this, but, and I present that idea because when Kay finds out about Rachel and they find the bones and, you know, what do you do when you find uh, a replicant? You go to where the replicants are made, right? Just like, where do you, what, what do you do when you have questions about memory? You go to the memory maker, which is Anna Staline. But when Kay goes to Wallace's, the Wallace Corporation, there's this it's ominous music. It's, it's, you know, who's in charge of this planet or this, this area. Like, to me, it seems very clear that Neander Wallace has autonomy. Uh, there is the LAPD, but he seems far removed from that, where he's doing whatever he wants autonomously because he saved the world via his uh, protein farming and all of those ideas that saved the world from famine. So he has autonomy. He has almost government, like autonomy from government as well, or world governments or something. So in doing so, puts him in this place of control in a way that the LAPD is not. The LAPD are there to make sure everything stays in order, but I think Neander Wallace is the one in control. And so if he's in control, it would make sense that this orphanage is his, or at least subsidized by him or founded by him, where maybe he's not like, yes, let's break ground for a new orphanage. Nothing like that. It's something more like, he's like, we need to track children. So how do we track children? I'm going to task you. You go find the people to do it. It's not going to have any ties to us. Um, maybe we'll pay a visit at some point to kind of, oh, look, a new orphanage in my name. But this is for other reasons. I anyways, I'm, I'm just spitballing here. I'm trying to figure out how all of this would work. And it would work in a system that there's no oversight. And it's very rare. I mean, we live in a world where there's, you know, child sex trafficking and there's in this country, all over this country, and they go on. Um, a lot of it happens without being caught. It happens underground. It happens through taking kids off the streets. Children, young girls and boys go missing, and you never hear from them again, and they're being trafficked. And it seems like the Moracle Orphanage is a trafficking area, um, and Neander Wallace has his hand in it. Well, what's really odd, too, is just... I'm trying to figure out how Kay knows to go here too. I mean, the scene before, again, it's it's him and Joy looking through DNA. The scene before was the great Yoshi scene. Um, and she's talking about you have to find the child. And then you know, then the DNA, like I mentioned with joy. And then all of a sudden he says, go for, let's go for a ride, which in my head sometimes gets stuck in the movie immediately after he grants her the gift of, of, of the emulator, but that's not the case. 
Um, and he says, let's go for a ride. So he knows this place exists. And that would make sense in a sense, too, of how Cotton is talking about how other people have tried to take him down. And also Jamie's point to at least the LAPD is aware of this operation and probably allows it to go through either because of nefarious back funding, either from Wallace or some other you know, nefarious corporate reasons, probably for a lot of what Jamie's saying. But yeah, you know what I mean? Like no one says, hey, Kay, go to the orphanage to look. Um, Kay just sort of knows either he's been there before on a beat or maybe he knows from his dream or memories, Jamie. Remember, he is uh, looking through that big machine. Yeah. With, and he knows about the Moracle Orphanage because the machine tells him about it. The machine tells him with the DNA, these are where these kids were. Mm, thank, yeah. So there's there's def- this place is on record. It's not, And it's almost in a sense that he kind of haphazardly gets there only because he's shot down. And it kind of goes to, again, Patrick's great point of how the scene is bookended and why perhaps it just gets sort of lost in the crack. It's maybe a lot like Staline. Whoa. But it's just, it's interesting too, you know, Kay just broke some guy's arm in half where the arm doesn't break and, you know, just gunned down a bunch of guys, ripped off some, I mean, and I, you know, maybe mixing this with Star Wars, but he's ripping people's arms off and just totally destroying them. And then he walks in and just kind of gives Cotton a light tap in the face compared to what Kay could do there. And so, yeah, no, it's just really interesting how this is, is, is almost like a, a known place. Again, it's just such great characterization too, where it goes with, Dr. Badger and, you know, uh, I just lost his name, but, you know, how each person in, in the original Blade Runner, they each have their jobs. And it's almost as if this orphanage is yet another arm or independent contractor to the Wallace Corp. So I think, Jamie, you're just, you know, you're on to something there. And, um, yeah, and, you know, I, I guess I'd like to sort of try and drive it. And, Patrick, you've been quiet for a sec, mainly because I keep jumping in here. But, uh it, it it would be it'd be nice to sort of play on that theme of children and again I don't I don't know how this fits into the greater uh, commentary of the movie. Yeah, I think um, just to kind of re- rewind for a second in terms of like how he knew about it, the the computer readout did tell him about the orphanage, but it also told him a couple other things that are worth kind of revisiting, which is that there were twins born with identical DNA except for the chromosomal genetic identifier. So. They and and it says that the girl died of this Galatian syndrome, I think, and that the boy was alive, right? So we're given kind of a lot of clues with that about, especially on a second viewing, what was really going on, and we start to see how the records are being messed with to help to hide Staline. And then the actual scene in question at the orphanage really is the clearest window I think we have the entire time until we meet Deckard again into what was really going on with Staline in the intervening years. Like we see that she's being hidden by, you know, her gender. She's being basically buried in this orphanage. She is being forgotten about, um, you know, by society. Her records are being expunged. She's trying to be made anonymous. And so in to make her anonymous, they take her to the great anonymizer, which is this orphanage. You know, one of my really good friends grew up in the foster system, and that's kind of defined a lot of his life. And it was very hard for him. And he talks a lot about that, about how you kind of lose a sense of your you know, identity after long enough in the system where you don't really have a home and you're kind of moving around a lot and the situations aren't always great. So, you know, he spent a lot of his time eventually in his teenage years just on a bike riding all over the city and not 
you know, going home again. And I think, you know, that's a much less, it's, it's a much more benign example of what these kids are going through. But in a way, it's similar because these kids really are being robbed of, for one thing, a childhood, but also just of any sense of like wonderment. And, you know, it's it's no, it's no mistake that when Kay walks in, they treat him like a god because to them, it's like, that's the only stimulation they've had probably in in weeks, you know, th- that there's something new to look at. There's somebody new coming in. There's This is a chance to escape this, this garbage heap that they have found themselves in where they're mistreated so much. An interesting aside uh, is on the DVD, quote unquote, special features, because we all know that they're not special features. Please give us more. Um, Lenny James is talking about Cotton. Actually, he says quite a few things about him. And one of the things is that uh, he believes that for his own interpretation of it, that Cotton was a school teacher before this. Um, And so like before I saw that, I had actually thought that Cotton had been an orphan and had grown up in the orphanage and that he was sort of continuing the cycle of abuse. But it's even worse to think of this teacher who has now become the great anonymizer and is, you know, selling these kids for for horrible ends and treating them so badly. Um, But yeah, going back to Staline for a moment, like this is as close as we get to touching Staline, even up until Deckard putting his hand on the glass, because we really see her for what she went through in this sequence. And we see the pain that she endured as a child being hidden from the world. And, um, you know, when Cotton takes out the record book and shows him this, the, the missing 2021 year, I think it is, um, like that, that is, we see the, the hand of who ripped it. We can see the tear in the page. And like, that was, those are the people that we talk about the whole movie, the people who, you know, did everything possible to keep her from getting torn apart. Like we see the actual outline of the tear that they did in that very book. And that speaks to like the history and the lineage of what was happening and how tragic and how intense it was. And one of the great things about 2049, I think, is that so much of this quote unquote exposition, and I really do mean that with quote unquote, because I think it's better than exposition, happens by it not being present. It happens as like the the afterglow of, of it having happened, right? Like we don't see Rachel dying in childbirth. We don't see Sapper coming back from the fields of Calantha. And we don't see all these things that we know happened, but we hear that they did. And they start to accumulate so that by the time we come to Staline and it all kind of clicks, we feel this very deep connection to her. Like we feel, we feel like something very important has happened that has led her to this moment and us as well. You know, the first time we see this sequence also kind of along a similar line, we are, you know, completely in Kate's headspace, right? The first time we see this movie, we really don't know that we maybe should not be. And so when we are walking into this orphanage with Kay for the first time, we are walking in there as the chosen one with him, right? So we interpret like the kid's wonderment. We interpret the fear in Cotton's face. We interpret the loud music as he walks into the furnace room as like signifiers of importance that Kay is this golden unicorn, right? And we and we feel that discomfort that Kay feels by virtue of associating with him. Like we feel the sense of wow, like this character is what this is all hinging on. And I think a major function of this scene is to get us to that headspace with him, and then to give us this incredibly powerful, like forty-five second to a minute gradual zoom in on the furnace that like really is just it's like it's incredibly powerful filmmaking because what what Villeneuve is saying with that is like this is the moment of sublimation like this is where the past meets the present and we find that he really was the unicorn and that so he wants us to feel that so that when he's not 
we have this incredibly deep reaction to it and we find that like we were also fooled just as he was for a really beautiful reason because they did such a good job hiding her that we were even fooled as the audience which is a pretty amazing sleight of hand to do in a in a blockbuster sci-fi film you know to be able to pull off narrative storytelling like that that's that's such a balancing act and so that's why it is something peter was saying it doesn't come across to me like it's like on the nose or like it's obvious although it kind of functions as such it's functioning as such to lead us from what's really happening it's like giving us a quick little easy answer so that we don't pay attention to what actually is happening and that way when we do we we feel like the sense of the disconnect between those two things um so yeah it's a sophisticated sequence there's one thing that Kay says to cotton that i find very mysterious but I'm curious what you guys think. So Kay is questioning Cotton about kids that have passed through the orphanage and Cotton's being very obtuse and rude and whatever. And Kay says to him, I can open you up and find it, which means, which made me think, is Cotton a replicant? Because you can't do this with a human. You can't, you can't open up a human and find a specific memory. Oh, okay. This is the, like, I, from what I know. So I'm wondering if Cotton is also a replicant, that this is a a replicant run thing. Cotton saying to Kay that they were men at that. I don't, which would be a dig at Kay, but it would also be something like, yeah, they weren't like us. They were men, you know? Um, and I, I don't know what that adds to the mystery of this scene, but it more than just a layer, another layer, like, well, what is Cotton? What is this place? Who are these kids? And if these are human kids, why would these human kids be taken care of by a replicant man? Maybe because we don't want humans responsible for doing these things. We need a replicant in charge, much like we need a replicant hunting other replicants because we don't want anything to do with it, to do with it. Just like you know, World War II and having Jews um, essentially take care of themselves. Well, not really take care of themselves, but police themselves during you know in internment camps. So I, I don't know. I mean, and, and that orphanage feels like an internment camp to me. These kids are not, these kids are suffering. They're, they're, they're they look malnourished. Their eyes are set in. They, they're gaunt. They're, this is not a good place. This is a, an internment camp. I don't know, like once they age out, what happens to them, if they're killed, if they're let go, if they turn into just a, a steward like Cotton, I don't really know. But that question as to what Cotton is haunts me. No, it's a great one. And that's why, again, it, it goes to all the, the every conversation ever on this movie with its ambiguity. And I, I I thought the same thing. And my initial take coming into today, which Jamie is now making me question, which is why it's so fun, was, I mean, I assumed it's a lot of what, what Patrick was saying, which the bookend to this is Kay was just through a traumatic event where he just had to do what he does which is just kill a bunch of random people because they were attacking him and at the same time there's missiles coming down and he was just in this intense scene and you see it when he walks in that first room that we're talking about where it's, it doesn't show you the expanse yet i mean he he walks in gun drawn and immediately is again taken aback and like micah mentioned the wonderment and i i mean he full-on just kind of like whoa his hands just kind of go like whoa 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 hey wait a second here and he kind of almost you know, I got to get out of this headspace that I'm in, which could very well be what, 
you know, I like sort of, again, the contrast here of, you know, Mike is mentioning that Kay's presence um, just saved Cotton or saved the children from being um, from at least that one from dropping his work. But at the same time, the children just saved Cotton because had Kay walked in, I mean, his headspace is he's in full on replicant job mode, you know, shoot first, ask questions later, but the kids throw him off that. And then he gives Cotton the sort of Spider-Man light touch instead of putting his hand right through him. So that's really interesting, Jamie. And I, I mean, I, 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 and so what I'm getting to is my initial interpretation was that's K off baseline and full on making a threat to a human, which he's not really supposed to do, which is I'll just take a look inside you, which isn't, I'm going to look in and pull this info, you know, Kylo Ren idea. I'm just going to put a hole in your head and you can deal with that and I'll go get what I need which I think is what it had no children been in there. He would have done. He would have walked in after this intense scene, guns blazing, shoot anyone he sees and just walk to the book and take the info himself. But the kids and the, their reaction to him, like Patrick's saying now, again, this is why this is so fun. I didn't come into with any of these thoughts, but I mean, the fact that we're led to believe that he's taken so aback also, because now these are the kids from his memory. These are shaved head kids in the same clothes of his favorite, in a sense, or only memories ever had. And now he's thinking, I'm here. What do I do? What am I supposed to do? What did I do before? And so it's just wild that all that sort of culminates. But yeah, and but it can 100% be read the same way. And it would make total sense of what Jamie's saying, which is why put a human who could die, have sympathy, allow a child or, you know, not strike a child or take a any sympathetic or, or humanistic approach, which in the Blade Runner universe we find often is worse than the replicant approach. But anyways, it, it's, again, Jamie just brings up this whole thing I've never even thought about, which is, yeah, it makes perfect sense to have a replicant in charge. Then he can guard and watch over this place for all eternity. So, I'll, I'll, yeah, pass it on. But yeah, Jamie, that's a great question. I hadn't actually thought of that at all, that he could potentially be a replicant. Um, I had always taken the comment from Kay as being just a straight up threat, like I'm strong enough to put a hole right there with my fingers, you know what I mean? Um, because it immediately shrinks him. And like I was saying before, I think the flip that happens there um, is, a, to me personally, it's a bit more effective if he's a human because he's immediately um, shown that K, a uh, Blade Runner and a replicant is much f- more physically strong and um, capable than he is as a human and a human being who is a bit older. But I do think it's very interesting the thought about a replicant being made to take care of these human children because obviously the children are um, kind of throwaways from society and replicants are throwaways from society often. So it would make sense for them to task a replicant with something, a job like this. Oh, you need to go live in the trash paradise and take care of the kids. Um, and yeah, I do agree, Peter, that often in the Blade Runner universe, the sympathy is given better from replicants. I mean, historically in the movies, as we've seen, and um, I think it's just it's a really interesting thought both ways if it's a human being how cruel he's being especially if he's a teacher um, that's that's monstrous 
Um, but if he's a replicant, it's interesting that the amount of power that he's given in the moment and how he chooses to wield it against these children. Um, and then when he's confronted by, an, if he's a replicant, another of his kind, his switch immediately to being subservient once Kay um, gives him the violence that puts him in his place. It's just, you could go on for hours about this. Which is why I love these movies. I love it. And I love how much we learn about ourselves while asking these questions, because that's really ultimately what it's about. Yeah, I guess should we kind of give some final wrap yeah. ups and yeah, let's do it. And, yeah, I, I, I'll, I'll happily jump in front of it. In that, um, sort of some of the last comments and sort of the ending of the scene is is great too. In that, it's sort of a, an odd, haunting end. In that, Cotton discovers that these pages have been ripped, and and Patrick, I love the visual and sort of the, how you describe the the physicality of it that you've actually seen now evidence of someone ripping it out. And it, is that Deckard? Is it Rachel? Is it? this you know the other replicant group that i have issue with um or anyone is it is it wallace you know have they been on this trail before and they want the records um again the fact that that's not answered is great and then but i just love the fact how he references or he he's basically mummer mumbling to himself and stuttering you know this should be here i i don't know i don't know and he just sort of disappears and again, under a less, um, I guess, brilliant hand that just seemed like a weird cop out, much like movies who sort of end on the, well, what if? And it's like, you know, it's much more masterful to end it with the actual ending or, or something. But here it's done so well that he just fades away. I mean, and is that does he leave the orphanage? Are all these children now left to their own devices? Is he just hiding from Kay? We just don't. We there's no bow on it, which fits so well because Kay just drifts off to his place, and then the the scene with the furnace and and sort of the last two things I wanted to just reference, just because they're cool, um, for no other reason. Um, I really enjoy the scene with the office space. I, I think a whole nother anatomy of a scene could be done just on that office. Like Jamie mentioned, the the signs of water, the the colors, the textures, each little box and drawer and the paper. It's all just so painstakingly laid out. And every time I see it again, as a, as a Wallace fanboy, it's becoming. Um, it's it's a to me it, it reeks of nexus dawn too and what patrick said is ringing in my ears about how these are old grandiose things i mean that office may maybe not but at some point that was either a captain's room or i don't know maybe but something it just reminds me of the nexus dawn scene where you have sort of the mayors or the magistrates or whatever the heck their title is of la or maybe the world at that point um but these are decision makers and the nicest thing they can do is be in this weird, uh, seemingly uh, first floor garden level apartment. And that's their fanciest office. And this looks a lot like that office. And now with time passed as it has. Um, so it's just interesting, too, that, that at some point that office could have been a lot fancier. You know, he could have walked in with cotton in a, in a button down suit and he swiveled chairs around and is like, welcome. And, you know, sort of more of an 80s, you know, sort of executive scene could have unfolded. So it's just great that that that's sort of, again, it gives us that lived in. And if you've gone through all the materials, 
it calls back to that and shows how this scene could have played it. It could have been a lot more Nexus Dawn, people in a little bit more regal attire. Cotton himself could have been in something more than just an old sweatshirt or rag over his head. So I love that too. And then just finally, I just, you know, sort of to, to put a feather in, I guess, our own cap in some sense, but also mainly your guys as my other hosts here tonight's cap in that, you know, the main thing as to the question that Jamie posed at the very beginning is um, sort of, you know, have we seen children in the Blade Runner universe? And the first thing I thought of in this entire episode is, again, how well you guys have gone through. And we've all discussed that really uh, in a lot of ways, this is not the first time we've seen children. All the replicants are, have been childlike. Roy Batty is almost the most childlike. And again, sort of the, this whole discussion of fathers and mothers and children. And this is just such a an odd almost uh, hiding in plain sight a lot like Staline was and a lot why they probably chose this place to hide her is it it's just sort of a a very simple but masterful way to just sort of give us a, an insight again into the world and through the eyes of children but a lot of what we've done is is seen this world through the eyes of children like Kay and other people who have been in, explored it um so yeah those are just sort of my final thoughts and hopefully we can have some more discussions on children parents fathers mothers and again you know this whole sense of you know a messiah and what that means and all these types of things in this world so again just loved it loved every minute of this and yeah it's always goes by way too fast so thanks guys but yeah i'd love to hear everyone else's sort of closing closing arguments closing thoughts i can go quick um because jamie is visibly sweating right now just getting such a kick out of this must be so hot right now i don't know how you still have that hat on he must be dying um so to me like this whole scene just gets at the idea of waste and detritus and what is left behind and you know i, I don't know how involved wallace is or is not in this i know that's a really interesting idea to consider and it could very well be true but to me like regardless of that this scene just speaks of who gets discarded and who gets decided what gets thrown out in a society like the society of, of LA in 2049. And, you know, it's worth thinking of, of like who is there and why and what surrounds them. Like there are for one thing in San Diego, which um, <laughs> I, feel, I don't know. I don't know how people in LA feel about San Diego, but at least in the world of 2049, San Diego is basically just LA's garbage, <laughs> garbage dump. It's the Staten Island of Los Angeles is what I'm getting at. Um, and, you know, it's just basically just this this trash heap, literally, that is populated by roving bands of lunatics who shoot down spinners and police vehicles. It's like, it's insane. And then within the heart of that, under a pile of garbage is an, a sea of children. And that's like such a dark, terrible thing to consider. And I really think, and I know uh, a few of you have mentioned this tonight, in my personal interpretation of the film, these are kids that were left behind by parents who left to go off world i really think that makes the most sense to me and it's also just the saddest because we spend a lot of time wallowing in self-pity with adults right like deckard is a great example of that um both earned and maybe somewhat unearned but you know he feels pretty sorry for himself for a lot of both movies and um you know these kids like don't even have a voice like we, we never even hear them talk and imagine what they could tell us if they were given the opportunity to imagine how sad their stories really are not to say Deckers isn't in his own right, but you know we get to hear a lot from him. Um, I, I feel like there's a tremendous sense of loss. 
And I also wonder if those roving bands that I was mentioning, like the ones that shoot down the spinner, if those are the kids who never get out, you know, like if they just end up living the rest of their lives in the trash heaps, when they become too strong to be taken care of by a teacher like that, and to, when they can fight back for themselves, maybe they're just banished and they just go out and they just, you know, continue to scrap for the rest of their lives. Last thing I'll say, it's also worth remembering what they're doing in the first place, right? Under this like quote unquote enrichment exercise is they're harvesting nickel for ships. And those ships you can assume are taking people off world. So not only in, in, at least in my interpretation of it, are these kids left behind by parents who left this, you know, devastated world, but they are creating the materials to build vessels to get others off world too. And they are never going to be those people. So they stick in my heart a lot. And, um, and I think that they are, to me, the heart and soul of this section of the movie and a really a really important symbolic link to the larger themes in both films. I think this scene is incredibly important. And I agree with a lot of what you just said, Patrick, so I won't reiterate it. Um, something that you said tonight also, honey, is that I really like how it takes us on this journey with Kay and kind of bolsters the belief that he is the chosen one by giving him all this proof. And it really, it lends itself to the future tragedy of us finding out that it's not him. But at the end of the day, it's almost Phoenix-like that Staline has risen from this place, this, this garbage, this literal hellhole with fire and furnaces and she creates the most beautiful memories. And that always makes me emotional and it makes me tear up thinking about it because other people talk about how she makes the best ones. She makes the most beautiful memories. Um, and the type of person that she is, despite all this tragedy that we've been talking about, that we witness through these children's eyes, because like you said, they don't get to speak. All we get to see is their expression. And those kids emote so much loss and tragedy and yet at the same time so much hope and Staline is just this example of some one who was able to escape from her circumstances and 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 rise above and become a person who creates beautiful memories and and helps enrich the lives of the replicants it's like one gift that society gives to these new replicants that they can have and hold almost um, so I think this scene is just so full because it's it's laying groundwork, it's clarifying, and it's also providing a rich emotional backdrop for the rest of the movie. So yeah, it's gonna take us some time to unravel, and I'm sure I'll still have thoughts about this tomorrow when I'm I'm processing what we were talking about. But it's it's just another fantastic piece of this movie that will I will never forget. Uh, lastly, for me, one of the most powerful parts of this sequence is the idea of a man walking into a group of children who has never been a child and what that might be like, which in some ways he's had his childhood robbed from him. He's never been a child. He doesn't know what that's like. He has a false memory, which he knows is a false memory implanted. And so there he is amongst foreign creatures. I mean, they're they're extraterrestrial creatures for all intents and purposes. They're 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 something he can't even understand. Um, and you can tell by the way he's he looks at them. And so that sticks with me to what it would be like to walk into a situation where you're greeted by these 
this normal part of human existence that you have never experienced, not just because you haven't had children, but because you've never been a child. And uh, that I think about all the time. And I'll continue to think about. And lastly, um, it makes me think about Celine and her memories of being in this place and what that's like, what it was like for her to talk to Kay, knowing that she's implanted his model with her memory. I mean, that's a whole anatomy of a scene right there, that whole conversation, because what they're talking about isn't what they're talking about. It's it's something grander than that. And she's playing coy the whole time. So I look forward to the next anatomy of the scene whenever we do it. Thank you guys so much for coming on and for staying up late. I'm going to go, uh, according to Patrick, I'm going to go hug my hundreds of, of children now, uh, <laughs> as everyone should. If you're a parent out there, give your kids an extra squeeze because of the scene. If you're a kid, give your parents a call. We'd appreciate it. And yeah, just so everyone knows, my 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 house scene is more, it's more like Annie. It's it's a happy singing <laughs> environment and, and less There's like still hundreds, of, hundreds of children. But, yeah, you know, but they're all happy, singing yeah. some some clever song and then cute. <laughs> Cute rags, not dirty rags. Buddy, good night, everybody. Thank you for listening. Good night. Thank you. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.